I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to Radio Times. Apparently, you can go home again. Poet Thomas Devani grew up in Home Circle, a white working class section of Northeast Philadelphia, and his plan early on was to get out of the city. He did, living in Rome and then Brooklyn in the late 1990s. In the introduction to his new book of poetry, Getting to Philadelphia, he says that he always felt sick to his stomach when he came back to the city where his family still lived. And yet now he is an award-winning Philadelphia poet who has made the city and its people an inspiration for his writing. He teaches creative writing at Haverford College and joins us on Radio Times to read some poems and to talk about his relationship with the city, his work collaborating with local photographers, and his upcoming documentary film on the 1976 bicentennial that was held here in Philadelphia. And Tom Devaney, nice to have you back with us on Radio Times. So happy to be here. You know... I think all of us kids want to get out of town or get away from the family or go someplace that is unfamiliar. What was the pull for you to get out of Philadelphia? Right. As you're saying, it's a, it's a, a not an unusual story for people who, to want to get away from where they grew up and uh, make it uh, make their lives somewhere else. But for me, it was deeper than that. I felt uh, I didn't fit in on a deeper level. And I don't think that I had a a lot of models for the kind of life that I wanted to live. So I needed to sort of go out and and create that those other relationships and other families. In order to get that life, was it a life of, of writing? I mean, even as a young person, was it being a writer or an aspiring writer? I started to write a little bit uh, as, as in high school, but I... The, 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 instead of uh, not getting on the baseball team or the football team or anything like that, I was. Uh, they said, "Oh, why don't you play the clarinet?" <laughs> so uh, music was helpful uh, in sort of taking me into a kind of a smaller uh, group of people that were very interesting and uh, practicing all the time. And th- that practice really helped me to sort of focus. In fact, you were a musician for a time, right? That's right. You went to Temple University, studied music there. I started as a music major, and uh, before that I was uh, in the all-city jazz band playing lead tenor sax, and I played the clarinet and uh, played all over town, played in Atlantic City every weekend, weddings, parties, babitzas, you name it. It was fun. You also write in the very beginning of your book of poetry that Philadelphia is the poorest large city in the country, which it is. It's the only city to have a World Heritage designation or status, status which it has, which kind of speaks to the bipolar nature of this city. Did you feel that growing up? Do you feel that now? Absolutely. Uh, those those profound uh, – that – uh, recently, Philadelphia has become a World Heritage Site. It's the only city in the United States that's a World Heritage Site. The criteria for that are very high. And uh, so we have a lot of heritage uh, here, and it's exciting. Um, and then we It's ha- all around us. It's all really. around us. And then we have this deep poverty that uh, that we need to confront, and we need to sort of find a better way to sort of live together. And uh, so... Right now, and from the time that I've been here, those two realities, and there's more than two, are, are, are simultaneous. So it, you, it's sort of you can't take the, you know, the so-called good with the, without the so-called bad. It's, it's sort of all in the mix. I do want to have you read a poem that you have titled Raccoon, but I'm just curious first what, you know, you wanted to leave town. You did. You lived in Brooklyn for a while. So what brought you back to Philadelphia? Uh, what brought me back to Philly literally was that I, I – 
what was able, I got a job at the University of Pennsylvania at the Kelly Writers House. I was living in in Brooklyn and New York for six years, and I saw this job and it, and it drew me back. So a job brought you back here. That's right. And you've been here ever since. That's right. And I, <laughs> Making I, peace with your city. Absolutely, I love it. I love Philadelphia, and uh, I have an embattled relationship with it. But ultimately, I'm there. Well, let's. Let's have you read one of your poems, and this one is called, very simply, Raccoon. Right. Raccoon. Raccoon. I didn't know the strength of a city raccoon, which busted out through my chest, escaped down the side street. Wild eyes of the raccoon's lightning lighting up reflectors from here to Water Street. A raccoon uses the full weight of its body to get what it wants. Something in me, some immediate want, unburdened by one weight lit by another, cravings in the headlights. On the night in question, I was a wretch along the railroad tracks, a bulky brown sofa dumped without its cushions, Christ and a mouth thirst, all my Jersey devils. With every trash can lid, it flips off. The raccoon feels more itself. Prophets and raccoons share a single ritual. They wash their food. The row homes sleeping. The row homes counting their bricks. Every night, raccoons follow the same path. They don't go far. Cellophane wrappers coil in the crabgrass. Dogs down by the river. Trails of cinders, piles of gravel, lines not marked but closely kept. Reflectors everywhere, sneakers, bicycle parts, a stop sign in a pile of junk in someone's shared alley space. And rows and rows of painted poles in the vibrant dark. Poles of concrete sunk into the sidewalk so no one can park there. And that's our guest, Tom Devaney, reading from his new collection of poems. It's called Getting to Philadelphia, a poem titled Raccoon. There is a lot going on in this poem, Tom. Raccoon. Why raccoon? Well, you don't have to live out in the country to be a nature poet. No. And there are <laughs> raccoons in the city. Absolutely. Uh, just the, the the tenacity of raccoons, uh, they're part of the phantoms of the city they're haunting you know in the corners and uh at night right you're right and uh it just uh i kind of wanted to go on a journey with one of these raccoons so i sort of took that journey uh in a dark space in my in my in the speaker's uh psyche you know uh the poem uh, kind of implicates uh the darkness within itself and I kind of feel that implicating that uh, is a way of sort of struggling with it instead of going after it on the outside, kind of looking at it and, and grappling with it on the inside. I, I circle for some reason. Prophets and raccoons share a single ritual. They wash their food. I have to say, I grew up with a raccoon for about a year, mm-hmm. and that was always so fascinating to watch them kind of sit on, watch him actually sit on his haunches and take his whatever and stick it in a little bowl of water we would put there for him, and then he'd 
you know, munch away. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 it, the raccoons are very intelligent and uh, they're great learners. So that p- part of the, the, you know, how we live with them in cities is that they keep uh, learning uh, whatever uh, people do to sort of say, oh, don't get on my roof. They'll figure it out that yeah. they're very intelligent. I want to have you read another poem, and this is called The Blue Stoop. And I think anyone who lives in Philadelphia, and I should say we're, we're, uh, Jennifer Childs is going to join us in about 20 minutes or so. Great. And uh, she has this wonderful character. She plays uh, Patsy, who uh, <laughs> talks about the world from her stoop. But stoops in Philadelphia really go together. And, Tom, I'd love to have you read The Blue Stoop. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Sure. The Blue Stoop. Who remembers the blue stoop? I'm laughing at the question, who? Everybody. All the names. Like an early book of the Bible. It isn't just names. They go deep and make three wide steps. Three very wide steps and everywhere. There is Franny and Kim. Amy, Gary, and George. Dawn Ann and her red-headed brother Bobby. B.A., Matthew, Paula, and Rob. Tommy Fliss and all the Flisses. Goddamn Steve Fliss. Steve smoking Fliss. Anthony's mother's leaning out the window. Does she ever go out? Yes, every day. She leans out the window all day long. Anthony's uncle played the trumpet. Everybody knows that. But when we say he played the trumpet, we mean he played with everybody. Yes, Tony Bennett. But have you ever heard of Al Martino, Guy Lombardo? People, big bands. He played with them all. And in some third floor heaven, he still is. People say, once upon a time, a call was a dime. They say more than I can say here. They are living. They say, don't forget where you're from. But I don't have to. I never left. Recently, somebody said the blue stoop looks smaller than it used to. I guess they know what they're talking about. But don't tell that to Michael, Michael, and Michael, and a generation of roses weaned on a fresh coat of swimming pool paint every few years. All of the dirty kid faces that will never be clean. Those are my faces. And that's uh, Tom Devaney reading a poem called The Blue Stoop. First of all, it is so visual. I can I can see what it is that you are writing about. And I know you work with photographers. Um, I'm assuming you're a visual person, and it's right here in, in, in the writing. That's right. It, 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 it is a, a visual poem. It's a poem that first um, I wrote it in response to a photograph by Zoe Strauss, and uh, she, I, I was right. Uh, she's a local photographer. The local photographer Zoe Strauss, who has an international reputation. Uh, she had a show at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and an editor from Bomb Magazine asked me to to respond to some of her work, and that was a picture that uh, was sent to me, and and I responded to it. It's like this three steps in front of a a row home, two story row home. I think it's called like. Um, 4th of July 2008 and there's nobody uh, in front of the the house it's just the, the blue stoop right. and uh, yeah I have you know more to say about it 
Well, you know, I, I, I again circled another part of this poem when you write. They say, "Don't forget where you where you're from." I, but I don't have to. I never left. I mean, you did leave, but you never left. Isn't that part of leaving? I, yeah, part of this poem is I'm channeling voices to that that I know. So it it, it does sort of this poem is me speaking, and then you know, people say, "Don't forget where you're from," but I don't have to. I never left. That's a kind of a bravado voice of. Of, of this space and this place that I know. And somehow that bravado voice, I never did leave, even I, even though I did leave. So in a sense, it's it's deeply true of me. But in a sense, it's also something I once heard somebody say directly and very forcefully. Well, let's take a very short break and then we'll get back to our guest. Uh, Thomas Devani is our guest. And he's a local poet here in Philadelphia. He teaches creative writing at Haverford College. And he's got a new collection of poems we've been uh, having him read from. It's called Getting to Philadelphia. Philadelphia New and Selected Poems. And you can join our conversation. Any questions or comments, send us an email, radiotimes at whyy.org. You can also tweet us at whyy radio times, and you can call us at 1-888-477-9499. Thomas Devaney, stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscowane talking with Tom Devaney, and he's got a new collection of poems. It's called Getting to Philadelphia. I'm interested because you have, I don't know if you still are a musician, but you certainly were a musician. How much do you think being a musician has affected you as a poet? How much of your, how much of the, of what you do is really music on the page? It com- it completely informs what I do as a writer uh, because I'm very a voice-driven person. I'm interested in phrases. I'm interested in the combinations and rhythms of language. And so I'm always uh, – my ear has been trained as a musician, and I- I'm using those skills uh, to uh, write more you know, musically, have, find the shapes – find the structures that are in our, the language that we're speaking. Does that mean you work out loud, that you need to hear the words that you're writing in your poems? Or yeah. is it kind of going on in your head anyway? It, it's, all, it's all together. It's the body and, and the head and your breath and the spaces that we use, the pauses that we all have, our gait, how we each walk differently, how we each have our own stride have those rhythms that are inside us. And I'm interested in how each person has their own, their own stride, their own gait, and their own, you know, the sort of mark of who they are. And can you see that when when someone walks by you on the street? Absolutely. I think so. Yeah, you really can. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to sort of key into it, uh, to to see the different, uh, just not just listening, but to watching the whole, the whole, the rhythm and the, the movement. Your poems are also filled with people. I'm assuming people you know deeply or people that you know casually or maybe overheard names. But it's it's very personal and very filled with people. Well, there's dozens and dozens of people um, that the world will never know that are in my poems that I carry in my heart. 
so there's this the, the unknown people that I meet, and uh, we have these encounters. And then there's people. Uh, a lot of poems are are these people that I have relationships with, and over time, and uh, so you know people who I've you know been informed by by looking at their work, like the painter Sarah McEnany. She's helped me see Philadelphia, like Callow Hill, the Rail Park, the way she uses green and red together. It just helps me to see the city more deeply. You know, I'm just taking Sarah as one example of people who have helped me to see the city. There's newspaper writers who've helped me see the city. You know, there's other writers that you know that I love. Well, that's a perfect segue to your poem called Oregon Avenue. And to those of you who don't know Philadelphia, it's a big avenue in 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 South Philly. Um, and it has a famous diner there, but uh, let's hear your poem, Oregon Avenue. Yes. I never lived on Oregon Avenue, but um, I lived in South Philly. <clears throat> Oregon Avenue. You can't find a place to smoke anywhere, Rose says, smoking and rifling through her handbag, looking for a number. She sits in the back seat with Meg. They're not singing. The ball game's on inside, and outside, the game is always on. Actually, sometimes they do sing. What year is the car? A 98? A Ford? A Focus? They always tip, too. There is dust, always, and terrible dirt. But if that's what you see, you're hardly looking. We believe in the front step. We believe in banging pots and pans and honking horns. We believe that in the heat of the day, shadows come back. Trash can on fire says, things are hotting up. The streets a mix. Water, water ice, live crabs, jumbo jets, firecrackers. Summer days are huge and often overlap late into the fall. Seriously, when you have a good spot, why move the car? <laughs> Again, Thomas Devaney reading from his new collection of poems, Getting to Philadelphia, this one called Oregon Avenue. And again, there is a lot going on in this poem. Uh, I do need to underscore the final line. Seriously, when you have a good spot, why move the car? There's a lot of references to parking in your poetry, Tom. That's right, which was unbeknownst to me until I, you know, I put this book together. I've been writing this this book as a selection of my work from over twenty years, so I didn't realize there were these hidden themes like uh, like parking. Um, it's you know I kind of have been you know informed and and learned how to you know see the mundane and the quotidian from certain writers like uh, William Carlos Williams and um, Gwendolyn Brooks, just to see the ordinary. And to see what's in front of you, and not, and not, you know. So that that's part of our life here, and uh, dramatizing that. Well, it is the ordinary, but it is so important finding a parking place. Goddamn right, it is. We're not going to leave. <laughs> We're staying. We're staying, but we need a place to park, right? Let's have yeah. Let's have some fun. But you know, it's funny. Then you then you have this car, and you don't. <laughs> it's just there. Here's an email from Roy. Can you ask Tom to talk about his time with poet Allen Ginsberg in Brooklyn at the New School? Sounds like someone who knows you, Tom. 
Um, I studied with Allen Ginsberg in graduate school at the City University of New York, uh, specifically at Brooklyn College, and uh, I, Ginsberg was uh, a great joy. Uh, he was very tough on me sometimes as a, as a teacher, but he taught me a lot. Uh, I, I really do um, respond to his uh, his candor. I, I just believe that he uh, he was very sincere and he, he he had a great like sense of joy. And I think that he is one of those people that encouraged me to sort of implicate myself in my poems and to sort of embrace the the darkness within. And I think that he really got that from someone like um, William Blake, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. You know, you you can't separate the the heaven and the hell. And in a sense, that that is a kind of part of the Philadelphia story that, you know, you were were poking on to earlier, that that it's a confounding reality of multiple truths that that you can't sort of pull apart. You want to, with your whole life, you want to separate them. But somehow they're there. Why was he tough on you, or what was he tough on you about? Well, he thought that I should be a musician because I played some some of my my tapes for him. So he said, "What the hell are you doing?" Trying to write poetry. Yeah. So that was one thing, and then other times he would he scolded me uh, for for one time I wrote a, a, par- a little stanza and he asked me what it was all about, and uh, I told him I was trying to be ambiguous, and he kind of shook in his seat and he said. You know, damn you and your ambiguity. Who gives a damn about your ambiguity? And he he didn't say the word damn. He said uh, no, another. No, I figure I, I, I grimace there. Yes. And then, after a moment, he took my hand and he gently said, "Never do that again." Oh wow! But did did you win him over to your poetry? I I'd like to think that. Um, he had a very strong sensibility, and I, I like to think that what I respect about it, Ginsburg is that he wasn't trying to get me to write like him, and that was a lesson that I learned about being a teacher as well, to try to find out who your students are and meet them where they are and and find a way to to support them. And I think that he did that for me, and I respect him greatly for that. You wrote about your high school English teacher, Lewis McKee, as, as someone who helped you, I guess, as a as a writer. Or helped you to, to think about words and poetry? Right. Lou McKee was a great um, uh, 12th grade um, English teacher. He, I found out that he was a poet. He, started, he was an editor of Painted Pride magazine. He started giving me all these magazines. And he t- told me to read people like Eleanor Wilner. He told me about Lamont Steptoe. He told me about Etheridge Knight. He told me he, you know, he had a very eclectic sense of poetry. His friend Tim Delugos, who was a kind of a New York school poet who comes from Philadelphia. Um, uh, so Lou sort of opened up this strange uh, world to me that I'm still in right now. Talking with uh, Tom Devaney about poetry and reading uh, or getting him to read some poems from his new collection, Getting to Philadelphia. Uh, to join our conversation, and I do want to read Jim's email, you can send us an email, radiotimes at org. You can also tweet us at WHYY Radio Times, and you can pick up the phone and give us a call, one eight 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 four seven seven nine four nine nine. Just following up on that, uh, Jim emails us, which poets have been most important in forming your work? Can you winnow it down to a couple of poets? Maybe the two that we just you just mentioned? Well, I mentioned William Carlos Williams. Uh, it, it's a poet that informs my work because of uh, William Carlos Williams' embrace of the vernacular and embrace of the everyday, of the ordinary. 
you know, he has that poem called Patterson. He's like, what do I do? I sit here watching the waterfall. He says, what do I do? I sit here watching the water falling. He's at the waterfall. This is my entire occupation. And he was a doctor. Yeah. He was a doctor, yeah. That's that's the scary part. You're like, oh, this is your entire occupation. <laughs> um, but uh, there's people like that. Um, Frank O'Hara is a poet that's important to me. Uh, Amiri Baraka, Alice Notley, John Yao. A lot of poets that I would uh, identify as independents. Let me have you read another poem. It's called uh, Pete Rose Meet Zoe Strauss, or Zoe Strauss. And, and you mentioned that she's a, a locally based uh, but internationally known photographer. She had a big exhibit at the Philadelphia Art Museum, um, kind of a billboard-style exhibit. She was actually a guest on Radio Times. This was years ago talking about it. But um, I, I want you to read this poem. It's really, it's really nice. Yeah. Uh, Pete Rose. This is the Pete Rose poem. Pete Rose, meet Zoe Strauss. There are people who can teach you how to swim and eventually how to dive. But diving into home plate is a whole other thing. How fright and light are the self-same sparks. Who said that? I did. Pete Rose taught us kids how baseball was played. Now hit the dirt. When I gave Zoe my two Pete Rose books, she grabbed my arms and jumped up and down. She went off like the lottery. The 1980 Phillies racing to the pitcher's mound to pile on in a dance-around circle around Tug McGraw. You want to talk Pete Rose, Zoe said. They called me Miss Charlie Hustle. Honest to God, it's engraved on my fifth grade softball trophy. Right there. Miss Charlie Hustle. <laughs> Is that true? It's absolutely true. Oh, that's great. That's great. And the 1980s uh, uh, the Phillies were quite something. The 1980 Phillies, I'm 10 years old. They're the world champions. It's a great, uh, you know, as a little person to sort of have this sort of uh, energy in the universe. And, uh, and I... I, I loved Pete Rose back then. He was kind of like this hero to me. Now, you know, I don't know anything about him. The time has gone. He's kind of a, a sadder story. But he's a great baseball player, and he lives in my little heart. You know, this this guy who just sort of dove into home plate. Uh, it's it's really um, it's burned into my brain. And well, I like about this poem too is is as you say, finding poetry everywhere. But. I think sometimes people put sports, especially Philly sports, over here, poetry over there, and you bring them together. Yeah, I think my my ambition and goals to to be a writer is to sort of be as accurate as I can in the worlds that I'm living, and to, more so maybe to be accurate in the in between worlds that I'm living. So that's more. I have one foot here and one foot in this world, one foot in that world, and my my kind of drive has been to sort of like to honor that in-between space between the cultures that I live. An email from Jamie says, uh, our lovely city has changed so much in the last few years. Can Tom talk about how the changing city landscape impacts his work since it's so anchored to place? And the city has changed dramatically. Absolutely. I mean, especially downtown, the kind of emerald city of Philadelphia. Well, the book's called Getting to Philadelphia, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Uh, there's the the uh, you know 
just like the rich and the poor, there is the the the, the places we are pre- preserved and the places that we're knocking down, like at Jewelers Row, and there's gentrification and. Uh, people getting pushed out. And there's a lot of thoughtful plans that are out there. The preservation um, organization that Paul Stenke um, runs, and there's a lot of good plans that people are thinking, Plan Philadelphia, that you guys here do at WHYY. So it's a really, it's a, it's a complicated thing. For me, I'm just always, it's part of it is getting documented in my poem. So it, it just keeps coming up in different manifestations. I want to have you read. Actually, I'm jumping ahead to the um, the sixth poem we have picked out, Look Me in the Face Sonnet. And I wonder if you could read that for Absolutely. us. On page 84, for those of you following along. This is a poem called Look Me in the Face Sonnet. Look Me in the Face Sonnet. A side effect of the side effects, and a bone-cold day. The aunt, who was more than an aunt, came closer and asked, You all right? Well, that's not you, not the guy I know. Stop fretting. Let's talk. Nobody can tell your story. Who has that? And me, she said, what do I want? Look me in the face, okay? I do, and sit and find... She's been sick for six months. Why tell, she said. Anyway, I'm telling you now. My body hurts like hell, but my brain is fine. My appetite is amazing. I'm still me. Do me a favor and sit for another minute. We don't have to talk so much. You're hooked with the phone and the everything else. Unplug. Leave it home, wherever that is. When you're doing the dishes, do the dishes. Tunneling? Dig the tunnel. Telling a story? Tell it to me. There's no secret what we need. Look me in the face, sonnet. We're almost out of time here, Tom, but who were who you writing about here? Um, this poem is a, a portrait of my friend Marilyn Kane. She was uh, in the convent. She was a nun for 29 years, and she was able to uh, leave the convent and uh, when she was in her uh, 66 and uh, had a good life outside. And she met a guy that I knew named Carl Ricosi, who was 84, and they had a great love, and Marilyn got involved, and we be, just became good friends, and just one of those people you connect with, and uh, who you feel is like a kind of a, a torchbearer who, who has is bringing some light to you from another place. And so I think it's very hard to write about the people that you know that we love mm. the most love. So it's very difficult for me to say all the ways that I love Marilyn, but I try to put her life force into this poem and a little bit of our relationship. 
Well, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, Tom Devaney, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Times. So good to be here, Marty. Nice to have you with us, especially to hear some poetry in these troubled times. And again, he's got a new collection of poems. It's called Getting to Philadelphia, New and Selected Poems. He teaches creative writing at Haverford College. And as you can tell from some of these poems, he's been collaborating with uh, local photographers. And he's got an upcoming documentary film on the 1976 Bicentennial. We're going to take a very short break and then... And shift gears and hear from the folks from 1812 Productions. Their, uh, this is the week that is, is uh, ongoing and uh, tries to keep us all up with the news and put a smile on our face. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. For 13 years, 1812 Productions has been combing the news for sketch comedy material for their annual holiday show, This Is the Week That Is. Currently, it plays in Players Theater in Philadelphia through January 5th. Not surprisingly, they have had a lot to work with this year, what with impeachment, Rudy Giuliani, and the Democratic debates in last week alone. Jennifer Childs, who co-founded 1812, says, the advice of Mort Saul has guided their work over the years, tell the truth and make it funny. She's co-writer of This Is and joins us along with Dave Jadico, writer and performer for 1812, to tell us how they put the show together, what with the onslaught of news that does not stop, and how to find humor in these turbulent times. Got a big job for you here <laughs> on Radio Times. Jen, nice to have you back on the it's, show. Thank you so much. And Dave, nice to have you back on the show. It's nice as to be well. back. Hello. Absolutely. So back in um, 13 years ago, was yeah. that 2006? Were you thinking, mm-hmm. oh, let's let's make this an annual let's make this an annual event? No, we weren't thinking about it at all. It was um, at the time we were doing uh, a number of history shows, um, history of comedy, and so it was the first incarnation. Really, was a history of political humor, and we started back with. Um, you know, vaudeville stump speeches, Will Rogers, et cetera, and sort of uh, brought it up to contemporary times. But it was such a hit. We said, okay, we'll do it one more time. Now 13 years ago. Yes, later, exactly. Right? There you go. So is this until the until the end? You <laughs> what a gloom, I know. gloomy, <laughs> gloomy a prediction. Of, until the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Absolutely. It yeah. is a lot of work, but it's it's joyous work and it's unlike anything else that we do. It happens so fast. You know, we, uh, we start rehearsals three weeks before the show goes up and we literally have a sheet of paper with a couple of ideas on it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the tricky part is you cannot write the news before it happens. No. And, a version of the show that we made for September would not be relevant in December. Well, how much are you then Dave, rewriting for this week or tonight or tomorrow or whatever? I mean, there's a bit of a stasis, I think, between the uh, yeah. Christmas and, and New Year's, but nonetheless. And we are a little fortunate in that it's, that this one week usually does slow down a little bit because that's the nature of politics is there's not a lot happening, although this year it, it continues. But 
we, we try to write the show with the intention of that a, a segment of the show can stay static mm-hmm. to the best of our ability. Uh, usually a good section of the first act mm-hmm. we try to write because it has a lot of singing, a lot of dancing, a lot of choreography, costumes, etc. However, um, and you, you saw the show, so you, I did you know the there, there's a, a, a huge segment with all the Democratic uh, hopefuls. And definitely when we've written this show four years ago, or yeah, four years ago, uh, Herman Cain dropped out around this time uh, from the process, and he was a significant character in the show. So we had to come in that next day and rewrite a 15-minute a, a sketch. Uh, and uh, the actress at the time, I May Kelly, had to relearn all these lines. And, wow. you know, and so there is a segment of the first act that we – and we've had to be responsive mm-hmm. when Kamala ha- Harris dropped yeah. out. We had to rewrite around that whole parody closing of the second act or first act, rather, that you saw as well. Um, had, we had a response to that. And then, of course, the second act, the news, we rewrite constantly, right. and we have a head news writer, Don, that does all that. You know, I was thinking, uh, tell the truth and make it funny. Mm-hmm. You said that's in the documentary about um, 1812. But I think for a lot of people, it's tell the truth and feel really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's it's children in cages. I'm yeah. just starting there. No, it is. Well, there's another saying that like you can make fun of the smoke, but you can't make fun of the fire. And it is, it is not funny that children are in cages. Gun violence is not funny. It's not funny that people die. But what around that? What is you know our response to that or the players certain people you know you just held up that picture of Rudy Giuliani whereas many things that he say are says are not funny at all but the uh the character of a person who says those kind of things can that be lampooned i think one of the tricky parts of this administration quite frankly is that you know satire is about pushing things to the absurd pushing things so extreme and uh so much that's going on right now is already extreme. How do you make it more so? And I should say to our listeners, the headline, I, I flashed it at our guests when they sat down in their chair. The headline from NBC News says, Giuliani says he's more of a Jew than Holocaust survivor George Soros. So yeah. saying, you know, can you, is that funny? Can you make that right. funny? And the challenge with that is, and there are, there's, there's some news jokes that happened this past week, and you you might even remember from the show, our, again, our news writer, Don Montre, will write these setups and the challenge for our newscaster, Sean Close, the, the gentleman that sits behind the news desk, is sometimes when he reads that, what you just said, the setup so that people have the context, the setup gets laughs because people and, – and often he will even have to say, that's not the joke yet. I'm, I'm reporting <laughs> on, on what you <laughs> said. And then there's a, there's a send up and then there's a joke or a spin that uh, makes it humorous. But often the setup is getting a laugh because that's absurd, mm-hmm. you know. You start the show off um, uh, with, uh, was it the curtain opener, the yeah, whatever? Curtain, the, curtain speech. Curtain yep. speech right. filled with puns. And I wonder sort of in the world of comedy, are, is puns just like low rent? Okay, that's great. I love it. You also showed it with your hand as well. It's like as if the desk like couldn't get any more. Uh, so, yeah. Because I live with someone sure. who loves the puns. Okay, so. all right. So here's, let me tell you. So, okay. yeah, so I, not to give away a lot, but, yeah, the beginning of the show, there's a lot of puns. Which I, I too, I, I'm, I'm embarrassingly so. That I, that is something that I too lean towards. And uh, the writers in the room are constantly crossing out my jokes because they're just oh terrible. <laughs> I get like I get a certain percentage of them. Just like using offensive language in the show, we only get a certain percentage or a couple of times we can do it, and that's it. 
And um, so, yeah, like so the beginning is puns, and I watch the audience, <laughs> and I say the first one, and the whole audience laughs. And I say the second one, and then you immediately – it's almost – it's as divided as the country is right now. <laughs> I will look out, and there's people who are wringing their hands with joy, and there's people who want to kill me, <laughs> <Yes>. actually <laughs> kill me. And that, that section is very fun to go through because I, I polarize the audience. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was Let's just going to say, say a, part of, a part of, you know, what we were talking about before is how is the truth funny? And the whole show is, it's not just about set up punchline. We need those, uh, we need those groaner jokes. We need the shock jokes. We need the things that are going to be pointy and are going to be a little bit too close to home. And then we need the things that are just ridiculous. Um, because that's, that's how you sustain two hours. And uh, and that's how you, you know we make it through. Yeah, you know I'm thinking of all the the late night political mm-hmm. slash comedy shows. Yeah. I mean, this is different. But how 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 do you see it as different? I see it as we always describe it as like the Carol Burnett show meets the Daily Show. Um, we certainly have that moment of somebody behind the news desk doing set them up, knock them down jokes. But we also have to talk about Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is one of the seven dwarves, you know, um, that is not something that you see, you know, huge, fully costumed dance numbers, uh, you know, like I said, with Rudy Giuliani and the other seven dwarves fighting Nancy Pelosi, the Wicked Witch of the Left, you know, (laughs) Um, it's that kind of joy and ebullience that we go for laughter with abandon as well as... um, as well as, you know, really pointy humor. And how different are, are is the audience each night? And I mean... D- drastically. Yeah, the audience responds drastically. It depends on who's there. We also... One of the things is we write also for the cast that's in the company right now. And uh, we have a, a very wide ra- age range in our cast uh, as well. And so the humor, we try and hit all age groups of our audience. And our audience does... I mean, there are... People, I, I'm surprised to see it sometimes, but there's like 10-year-olds out there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And people are like, no, this is a very mature 10-year-old. They'll get it, right? <laughs> okay. But, but our show is appropriate for pretty much like high school and up. Yeah. And, uh, and we're very savvy young kids. And, um, and, of course, a typical theater audience, which is uh, obviously a lot more older people as yeah, well. you can see that. Yes, you can. Uh, so a lot of boomers in the house. And, um, but every night, depending on which day of the week it is, like, you know, matinees tend to be maybe a few more older folks. Friday night or Saturday night tends to be maybe a few more younger folks. So depending on the audience, and there's different jokes that get different volume laugh depending on who's there. We try to write for the entire spectrum of the audience that's out there. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Dave Jadico. He's a writer, performer for 1812 Productions. Also with us, uh, Jennifer Childs. She is the co-founder of 1812 Productions and uh, their annual holiday show, This Is the Week That Is, is currently at Plays and Players Theater in Philadelphia through January 5th. Uh, you can join us. Send us an email, radiotimes at org. You can also tweet us at WHYY Radio Times, And you can give us a call, one 888 Nine. I, I've been several years in a row, so I know you always go out in the audience to try to find someone and drag them up on stage. And I'm, you know, I, I, I just anytime that ever happens in theater, I'm just under my seat. Please, I'm not here. But it was great because one of the people on Sunday afternoon called up was a young guy mm-hmm. who uh, and asked what his job was. Uh, he said social justice coordinator for a sleepaway camp. Mm-hmm. And I thought Wasn't that, that amazing? is perfect. Yeah. I, I thought I was like, wow. First off, job title that you would not have heard five years ago. Yeah. No. And um, and 
you know, it just he, he was really enjoyable too on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really fun to watch him interact. And that's one of the other differences mm-hmm. that you know, as Jen was talking about, the difference we do compared to what's done on TV. They do it so well on TV, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live and The Daily Show, and, and you know, they really do uh, political comedy well. But one of the things that Jen set out when we first started doing the show is how can we do it because we're in a theater? Mm-hmm. What is different about how we do it? And one of them is the audience. You know, mm-hmm. you see our newscaster Sean talks to the audience. The audience talks back to him and he responds to them. So it's almost sometimes a two-way conversation. And also, Jen says, we don't just take volunteers. We sometimes deputize the audience. We actually, they will get involved. And, yes. and uh, so that's a, a part of our show. And it, it makes it very live and very communal. Yeah. And, and do you know that we're all hiding from you <laughs> as you're looking for someone? Well, we, except for the, yeah, we never the pull any, Nobody's ever pulled up who doesn't want to go. Okay, it's, it's always, there's always a negotiation. Sort of bright yeah. eyes there's or always something. a negotiation. Exactly. And some people yeah, look like they want to kill you. And you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah. move along. But there's something that it, it is a community building exercise in so many ways. Like Dave said, a part of what makes this difference is we're in the room together. There's 200 of us here. We're all going through all of these. We're all dealing with our responses to this awful truth sometimes together and that together it becomes this a, a really mm-hmm. joyous event. Um, yes, the joke that we always tell is look at this gorgeous audience all trying to avoid eye contact <laughs> so they don't get picked. Exactly. And, uh, but it's, it's harmless. Mm-hmm. We, never, we never torture people too much. Well, Patsy, I, I mean, she doesn't make an appearance. We have to do that. And we just heard from yes, Tom Devaney with his poem about the the stoop in South yes, Philly. I know. I, I, my I heart, think there would be a, a revolt in the audience if she did not <laughs> appear in one form or another. Well, and she's she's got a lot to say about parking. That's for, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but, yes, uh, Patsy's poem at the end, Patsy is my South Philadelphia character, and her poem at the end of the show is all about a visit from Santa Claus, and, you know, I, what is it, I, you know, he he comes down and, you know, I say, hey, fatso user parked at my spot. You got to go around the block, son, because that that spot is mine. Didn't you see that beach chair? That's a South Philly no parking sign. And anyone that lives in Philly knows knows Patsy and knows what she's talking about there. There is, a, in looks like in March, Bingo Night with Patsy. Mm-hmm. There is. Yep. But, uh, yes, we rent a hall and you come play, and you really do play bingo. But Patsy hosts and calls the games. And so there's comedy and uh, audience interaction and all kinds of stuff in between. But, yeah, just for one week, um, it'll be at Christchurch Neighborhood House. And it's a... We did it, I don't know, six years ago, five about, years yeah, ago, something like that. that. Yeah. Super, super fun. And uh, I, don't, I hadn't played bingo in years. Yeah. And that's <laughs> a big part of our mission. You know, our, our theater company, 1812 Productions, we, we do all comedy, all different kinds. And mm-hmm. so we will do the work of national playwrights that are comedies. Or we'll do musicals. And we'll also do these comedy events, yeah. which are just – everything is about creating more laughter. Yeah. You know? Well, there are several Hamilton-based numbers mm-hmm. in, in the show, and we're mm-hmm. going to close things out with um, the song about uh, Pete Buttigieg, yes. which actually fits very nicely, yes. but uh, uh, just interested in sort of the thinking that went into that. Yeah, that I think maybe in the first week of mm-hmm. writing the show, the idea of uh, floating, uh, doing a Hamilton parody of some mm-hmm. sort, and obviously, you know, Hamilton's been out for a few years now, but Hamilton just did just come through Philly with the touring production. And I think just looking at the audience, I think about 70 or 80% of our audience, I think, saw it, judging by the recognition on people's faces. So it felt like a really good thing to do and use in the production. 
and uh, you know the um, the cadences of the rap uh, and the lyricism um, really lend themselves well to uh, you know parody. So sure. we jumped on it pretty yeah. hard. Yeah, I mean, how could you not? Parody, how much? I know. Well, it's also we look at not only like what is going on politically, but what's sort of in the zeitgeist. What are popular songs, or what are popular um, movies, or social things that are happening? And so that made it a no-brainer. Made a no-brainer. It was super fun, and it elevates, as you'll hear, it it (laughs) (laughs) elevates the what is sometimes mundane into something huge and ridiculous. So when this plays going on or the show is going on, where are you, Jen? Are you are you behind the curtain? Or are you? I'm this year. I'm home. You're home. <laughs> I'm home <laughs> with my daughter. I'm uh, going on college visits and things like oh my that. Gosh. So, um, but yes, I I am also though we daily the stage manager who's also Tom Shotkin, our co-head writer, Don Montre, our news writer. We are on an email chain going great. What's happening today? What do we need to change? Uh, throwing out ideas. There's a song at the very beginning of the show that has verses and what we call a refillable structure. The verses change to acknowledge like what's happening this week in the news. So that's I'm still yeah. on that chain, but uh, and Jen but, is writing our next two shows <laughs> at the office while we're doing this show. So fair enough. Just well, busy. always a pleasure, always fun. Thank you so much, Thank Jennifer you. Childs and Dave Jadico, for joining us on Radio Times. Eighteen Twelve Productions uh, is at the Plays and Players Theater. It's there. This is the week that is, and we do want to close things out with a song from This Is the Week That Is, uh, and this is a parody of Hamilton about Pete Buttigieg. Lightweight hot shot dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot called South Bend. A young gay Indiana resident grow up to be someone who runs for president. The veterans was better than the cream of all those crops in Indiana. Is a man a step above the rest? He never stops. Graduated Harvard, the top of the line, and mayor of his hometown at age 29. Have the edge in debates, so just 